Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Ivan Montoya. He is a Latin American super angel plus a VC. Uh, talks about fintech, prop tech, logistics, Latin America, and startups within Latin America. So welcome to the show, Ivan. Hi, Stuart. Good to be here. Yeah. So what is the most interesting thing you've learned about the uh, Latin American startup ecosystem that kind of surprised you over the last month? Over the last month? Um, well, I, I think... Uh, that there's still companies that are growing fast and profitable despite the the environment that we're in, right? And uh, that in Latin America, maybe throughout the world, uh, you can still be old school, right? And, and build profitable companies from the beginning uh, that are tackling big problems and they can grow. Uh, I don't know if you'd like to talk about interest rates, but I've been reading about this super interesting book that goes into like uh, low and kind of negative in interest rates, the the kind of low interest rate period that we've been experiencing for the past 20 years. And it's really interesting, just kind of this like overarching incentive that kind of has created a lot of businesses over the last few years that have been kind of like crazy. Uh, how do you think about like entrepreneurship in this environment? Do you think that entrepreneurs have learned bad skills? But in Latin America, it's probably different because in Latin America, the governments, the central banks probably might not have been doing the same type of interest rate stuff that, that we've been doing in the U.S. Do you know anything about that? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think it, it, it's interesting. I think uh, obviously macro has a big impact on everything. But at the kind of almost like atomic level of, of capitalism, you know, like an individual company, um, at least in the technology startup world, I think to some degree they're they're kind of operating in parallel universes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whether interest rates are low or high, if you're helping, you know, if you're if you're in a kind of let's just you're, you're building widgets, right? Um you know, whether you you build a widget with certain features or at a certain price, to some degree, doesn't matter uh, what's going on with, with interest rates. Where it does come into play is that the investors uh, are willing to invest in riskier things than they were yeah. when interest rates are high, right? And so, you know, when interest rates are high, the you know, if you can get 5% on treasuries and do nothing, and in the U.S., get a tax break for it, then the bar for investing in something other than that is a lot higher, right? And so they're looking for companies that you know better fundamentals that are, you know, that that are going to compensate for that. Whereas when interest rates are zero, it's like what the hell? I might as well take a flyer and let me back this company that maybe has a one percent chance of doing well. But if it does well, it's it's to the moon, right? And uh, or, or there's so many other people willing to back these companies that are losing money for a long time. Those things get funded, whereas in a tight interest rate environment, they don't, you know, or, or those, these, those fund uh, companies have a harder time raising capital. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're obviously related, but I feel they're sort of parallel tracks, you know, that, that uh, as opposed to it fundamentally affecting the founder, other than maybe the founder takes a riskier bet. Uh, on something that maybe doesn't has as great fundamentals because they think they can get they can raise capital, whereas in a tougher environment they're like, yeah, that I'm not going to be able to raise. So mm -hmm. that's super interesting, uh, and it kind of brings it up back to like a simple a simple question. But you know, I like the simple questions because often they're very very hard. Uh, which is what is the relationship between investors and startups, and how much does investment influence startups, and how much can startups be sort of anti fragile to whatever is going on in, in investment? Um, I don't know if you have uh, any interesting nuanced answers to that that question. Yeah, I mean, well, it's a it's a tough one to say because obviously it depends on on both the investor and the the founder, right? I think um, what I would say is, in my opinion, 
Um, it depends on the stage of the company where it's at, right? Uh, if you're talking about a pure startup where they need some money and maybe they need some mentorship, right? You might have some investors that are much more involved in uh, impacting the startup. But to a large degree, to me, my perspective is the investors should be very separate from from the business. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, the investor's not in there, you know, <laughs> de dealing with all the ups and downs of a company, right? They're, they're potentially there for support. Uh, they could be pain in the ass, right? They could be yeah. a lot of things, but they're not the deciding factor. If they are, that's probably a dangerous place to be, right? Um, so I, I don't know, you know, there are some investors who are super passive, right? If if you and I buy a share of Apple computers, we're not we're not uh, picking up the phone and calling Tim Cook and asking him uh, what his priorities are for the day, right? Yeah. Um, and there's folks who are like that at, at an earlier stage. Uh, and then there are some folks, you know, I think if you have an LBO or you have a private equity thing where the company actually owns the company, you know, the investors own the company, then I think that's a different story. Mm -hmm. That's a different relationship. So. Mm -hmm. And so what have you learned about the ecosystem within Latin America? I know that you have a lot of companies within uh, Spanish-speaking Latin America and some in Brazil as well. What mm -hmm. uh, what have you kind of noticed as you, because I know, and, and you also have experience in Silicon Valley, uh, what mm -hmm. have you noticed are some of the main differences between uh, Latin American startups either in Brazil or, or Spanish-speaking Latin America uh, and in Silicon Valley? And like, how does that play into current the current environment? Um. Well, that's a great question. I think I think they're more similar than different now. I would say over the last, you know, I've been investing in in private companies in Latin America for now four and a half years, almost five years, and um, and I think they're more similar than they are different at this point, right? Um, I think you could generalize and say, well, you know, the folks here in Silicon Valley, just the ecosystem is more developed, mm -hmm. and so the you know the the ability for a founder to get, to meet an investor right is maybe a little bit easier here or you know founders who are second third time founders right are more common here than they are in in Latin America mm. but i think at this point the internet is an amazing thing you know there's just so much information out there there are a lot of great uh startup communities in Latin America um, a lot of really good investors who've been out there doing their their thing for a while. So I think they're more similar, right? Uh, um, uh, maybe, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's the biggest difference is the type of startups that you might see. Mm -hmm. in, in the U.S., you're going to see the whole range. In Latin America, you might see less deep tech things and, you know, classic enterprise SaaS. But um but no, I think I think it's more to me. They're very similar. I think the main, you know, the other. Just thinking about this a little bit more mm. is maybe just the the the, the confidence level um, in 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 raising capital, right? In Latin America, it might be a little bit, you know, there's a it takes a lot more to pull it off, especially mm -hmm. in tough environments. And maybe in the U.S., it's like, yeah, we'll figure it out some way. So, and and uh, so, it basically takes a lot more to pull it off. Pull off raising capital within Latin America It takes a kind of a higher confidence level, which these second or third time entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley have more fluency with. Um, uh, anything to add on there? No, I think I think you know uh, it used to be at least I, I, it was kind of prior to my time in investing that that uh, investors and startups would talk about how the ambition level was different, right? So maybe it was like, hey, well, I wanna build a company that's, you know, it's got, it's the top company Columbia for X, right? Mm. Whereas in, in Latin America, sorry, in, in Silicon Valley, nobody says, well, I wanna build the top Californian company. You know, it's usually like, well, I wanna build the global X, or I wanna solve, uh, you know, this problem uh, wherever it exists. Right. Um, but I think that's very different now. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, the ambition level to me is still, maybe it's a little bit different in the, the typical Latin American company focuses first, either, Hey, uh, Brazil is a big country. So they either focus on Brazil or maybe they focus on Latam. I'm starting to see more folks who are, who are looking at global opportunities from the beginning. 
but mm-hmm. that's probably the the main difference but uh, you don't you don't see at least you don't see people looking for vc capital saying i just want to you know be a chilean company right um super interesting and it reminds me when i first went to brazil i met the co who would be a brazilian co-founder of my first company in 2012 uh, and it was so wild to meet him uh, because he had studied everything about everything he knew about startups had come all from that really rich blog ecosystem and Twitter ecosystem in 2012, all in English. Just, so just that he's, he had spoken English and he had studied in, in the U.S. a couple of times in high school. So he had that fluency with the American English. And so he was able to read from Brazil all these different blog, blog posts from Peter Thiel, from um uh, from Balaji, from uh, Naval, and from all these different people and like study. And he had some huge ambitions, which was, I think, very, very rare at the time uh, for four founders in Latin Am. Um, but it was so wild. And that was in 2012. And then that trend just continued and continued. And something you said when we talked last time was that uh, that the in 2020, once the, once the Zoom thing came about, that all of a sudden we had a societal change that allowed you to sit from your home and meet with people as because in Latin America that wasn't you know I was here in 2018 2019 and that was not a thing you could do get people onto a Zoom call it wasn't you know accepted but all of a sudden it came accepted really really quickly and it's probably still accepted to this day right like you're probably still doing a lot of the Zoom can you talk a lot talk more about how that changed uh, what's going on yeah I think you know and I think it's true globally so what I'm going to say about Latin America is even, it's true in the U S even but but I think. Um, when you think about startups, at least VC-backed startups, um, even here in Silicon Valley, it was a very kind of clubby type of thing. It was like, you know, the classic is the VC won't take an intro unless it's been referred to them by somebody else. So then now it's like this huge access game. Throw on top of that in-person meetings, right? And you've now just restricted the, the network of people that you could connect with who maybe maybe can give you advice, maybe can give you money, or maybe they can refer you to somebody who, hey, this investor might be a really good fit for you. And once you you get rid of that constraint and you can do this on video, I don't know, it's like a geometric expansion in the number of people who might actually be able to help you, right? Um, and then I think you throw on top of that, and I'm sure there's some of this here in the US, but in Latin America, historically, it's a very status kind of class driven society and so it might be like well what school did this person go to well if they didn't go to school x i'm not meeting with them right um whereas in the valley a lot of it is just like oh who's doing something interesting right Mm -hmm. and oh yeah somebody said that that uh engineer is the best engineer they've ever worked with right um yeah, not to say that there isn't status and stuff like that going on everywhere, but I found uh, I think in Latin America that's like at another level. It's like, you know, you know, decades if not centuries of you know small group of families or people kind of at the top of the pyramid. Whereas in Silicon Valley, the beauty uh, of Silicon Valley is is how you know the just the stories of people of so many different backgrounds whether they be U.S. folks, immigrants, whatever, creating great companies and people rallying around stuff that works, right? And so I think for me, at least my personal experience has been, yeah, I'll meet with founders. I remember the first company I invested in, this company in Columbia called Pickup, um, where, you know, that founder uh, went to school in Colombia to Uniandes, um, uh, never went to school in the U.S. His English wasn't perfect, Right. And here I am meeting with him via Zoom and connecting with all these other investors that I know here. And, uh, you know, that wouldn't have happened um, maybe three years earlier. Right. Because I wouldn't have met him and he probably would have struggled to get meetings with family offices or whatever. Right. So how do you deal with because that original idea of, you know, so the beautiful, beautiful thing about Silicon Valley was that it m- was more accepting because that same thing happened on the East Coast that happens in Latin America as well as like, OK, well, you know, what school did you go to? Where did you which finance finance place did you work at and all those different things? And then you go to Silicon Valley, definitely more about engineering, like having an engineering background. But still, it was kind of like, OK, well, we'll, we'll take this one step closer and just kind of like see my network to find out which interesting founder I know. And we can do intros based off of that. 
Um, and then now we're in this environment where the internet is just totally open. So you can meet really like random strangers who also can do something really interesting, like this guy from Pickup who didn't go to any of the uh, the schools in the US. How do you, but that original thing of like, okay, well, at least there's some degree of like, I know this person. So this, th- I know this person, this person is part of my network. I trust that person. So I can kind of like put that trust onto this other person that they know. How do you deal with that lack of having that um, in terms of finding new people? Um, and like, are there any kind of things that you do in order to uh, find out whether like, Maybe it's the due diligence. Maybe it's the like just getting a sense of uh, integrity through their intuition. Is there any way that you do that or that you find yourself doing that? Okay, so let me just clarify the question. So it's how how do I assess founders without necessarily having lived in Latin America for the last 50 years and knowing a million people? Is that the question? Or like, and not not necessarily, it doesn't even need to be a Latin American, but just this idea that the internet has changed. So all of a sudden you can take a meeting with this really interesting um, uh, entrepreneur who may, may have reached out cold calling you, yeah. um, how you evaluate that cold call. Uh, if you don't, if you don't have that filter yeah. that a network tr- traditionally, yeah. 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 So, you know, th- there's, um, I think there's a difference between, let's say the intro uh, meeting right? And then the way you do due diligence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so for at least I can't generalize, but for me, I do a lot of first meetings. Um, and some of those, uh, many of those are referrals from other founders. But let's just use the example where I have no connection to the founder at all. Uh, and I've had several amazing experiences with that situation. Um, then I think at that point, now it's about building the relationship with the, the founder over time. There's no substitute. There's just no way around it, especially at early stage. If, if your approach is to, um, you know, the, the hardest thing for early stage companies is literally to ship product, <laughs> to just get stuff done, right? And as an investor, at that point, you're, you're, you're backing, you're primarily backing uh, uh, shots on goal, right? Like, the, that the founder can launch product one, get feedback, iterate uh, on that product or launch product two, et cetera, right? So you're 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 backing speed um, and um, uh, you know, and an ability to iterate, right? And I don't care how many people, you know, you just can't judge that on one meeting, right? Yeah. And you know, at that point, then, you know, to the extent that you can pull in your network, hey, what do you guys know about these folks? And, and you know, if there's data on the business, right? Uh, so I think at that point, it's the fundamentals of investing, right? People may do it differently. They may do it under different timeframes. I typically work with a, with a founder for about a month minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases more, right? And through all those interactions, um, I get a much better sense of who they are. Uh, but the metrics, right, at some point, they are what they are, right? And then, uh, and then you pull in other folks, right? You get other folks. Hey, what do you think of this, right? Or have you heard of them? Um, that kind of stuff. But, but I tend to do it. You know, I, I don't rely on a one meeting, two meeting. Like, hey, I'm going to invest, right? Um, and and some of that was happening over the last few years. Uh, but I think we're going back, back to basics on on all parts. <laughs> That goes back to the interest rates thing. Is like yeah. the that 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 idea is so interesting that once the interest rates go down, uh, then the investor tries to find yield on that investment, and they can't do it through the treasury. So they have to find all these other crazy ways to do it. Which you know, at the at the crazy end of the spectrum, that's where it leads to things like uh, the subprime mortgages and the um, and Bernie Madoff and all that stuff. But um, uh, it's it's super interesting how that works and 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 how it also plays into the kind of the pensions and the startups and the investment and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's a business and like businesses can be built that are very, very valuable and regardless of what what the environment are. Um, so I, I mean, I'm just going to add one more thing just because yep. you, you, you may kind of, gen- you know, the and these are all personal experiences, but um, FOMO is is an amazing thing like and having uh witnessed this uh and probably at times been a part of it right where you know when you have a zero interest rate environment and somebody invested in company x in the us and in six months later that company x is worth a billion dollars and it was worth like 10 million whatever 
and you have more and more of those types of stories, it's pure speculation, right? And so now you see a company like that, let's say in Latin America or in India, and they'll say, hey, it's the the X of Latin, you know, of, of Latam or the Y of India. And you're like, Hey, I better get in. And, and it, the round starts to fill in. And so you, I think you had an, uh, you know, experience where there would be times when investors had to make decisions very quickly uh, in an environment where it seemed like everybody else was, was doing super well. Right. And so you, that's the classic FOMO. And what you realize is, these things take so long unless you are flipping, you're somehow kind of coming in and coming out uh, in a very short period of time that the FOMO doesn't matter. You know, the question is five years from now, 10 years from now, how's that thing doing? And um, and I think we're now in an environment where people, a you know, FOMO is like the opposite, right? And then the other thing is that I think you learn that there are, there's not just one or two opportunities uh, you know, it's not a zero sum game. Obviously, mm-hmm. there, are, you know, every uh, decade or so, there's only one Google, one Uber, whatever, right? So there, there for sure are some huge outliers. And if you're lucky enough to see one and perceive it, great. But in general, uh, my opinion is you're much better off doing the pretty serious due diligence uh, and just having strong conviction uh, when you invest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, limiting some of that FOMO, uh, which uh, it was my first experience. Well, actually, no, sorry, it wasn't my first experience. Uh, my first experience of FOMO was Webvan in 1996, growing up in Silicon Valley, investing in Webvan with uh, my lunch money. I uh, literally lost my lunch money on that one. Um, and and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and then um, and then this recent crypto boom. You know, I stayed out of it for a while, and then uh, then the crypto boom. And and uh, and uh, although I, I I managed to do the due diligence on. Loom, Luna. Uh, so I didn't invest in Luna, which was the one that 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 took it all down. Basically, was uh, was uh, the algorithmic stablecoin, um, and uh, I actually asked the questions like, okay, how are they giving twenty percent yield uh, to to these to these all these different investors? How are they doing that? Um, and uh, so really interesting. Um, and so let's take it to the conversation to. Um, uh, Brazilian and Latin American startups. I, I know that you don't have a lot of Brazilian companies, but I would love just like a little bit of a kind of understanding of what's going on in the Brazilian ecosystem. Last time I checked in, a lot of it was fintech companies. So new bank and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah what's going on there now? Yeah. So I, I guess two, one caveat, and then I'll give you my opinion. So one caveat is I don't spend the mass majority of my time is spent with Spanish speaking uh, Latin American founders and investors and and so on. But here's what I will say about Brazil, right? Um, so with that caveat, uh, Brazil is is like five years ahead minimum of the rest of, of Latin America in terms of uh, the startup scene, both from the founder perspective as well as from uh, the investor perspective. So uh, if you just look at the, the investors, there's way more of them at all stages uh, and it's more competitive, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that ends up, it it ends up looking a lot more like Silicon Valley, right? So founders have more choices, Um, investors are are working very hard, you know, to to try to get access, to support founders, and there's more capital at different stages. Um, So I think it's just a, just overall a more robust ecosystem. Mm. And, um, I still think there's tons of stuff in fintech still, right? The the kind of for people who are in it all the time, you always hear about how, you know, the banks in Latin America, but Brazil in particular, you know, it was this oligopoly. Their pricing was very high. The service level is not so great because they need they didn't need to innovate. It was like a utility, right? It was like in the U.S., you know, if if you're dominating the market, you can have high prices and bad service and you're not penalized. And so that created the umbrella, the pricing umbrella in the space for people like Nubank to come in, uh, Kreitas and a bunch of other kind of fintechs. And then you've got the, the um, uh, I guess, what is it? The central bank that may be the best uh, central bank in the world, possibly, right? In terms of driving innovation and supporting innovation with everything from what they do like picks to the regulatory environment that that's been fostered. So I still, mm-hmm. there's a ton going on there. 
uh, even still today, right? I remember seeing a, a pitch deck for a company that helps with uh, raising debt. Apparently, debt facilities and all these other kind of B2B debt is still a very archaic process. And um, so there's still a lot of innovation there, but Brazil is huge. I mean, relatively speaking, it's kind of almost like the US market in terms of population. And so I'm seeing tons of things all across the board, you know, from security, cybersecurity companies to hospitality companies, um, you know, to e-commerce. Um, so it's a pretty robust I'm seeing logistics stuff. Um, you know, I think, you know, Brazil is getting impacted like everywhere else. So, you know, I, I think you're seeing less speculative companies, right? Or people with business models that seem uneconomic. Um, you're definitely seeing a slowdown in, in later stage investing. You know, I, I forget what the number was, but even the US, the number of Series B and above were had dropped like 80%. So mm. Brazil can't escape it. But it's still a huge diversity uh, mm. of, of activity. Social media, too. Brazil is, even though I don't do anything in this, the whole mm. creator ecosystem in Brazil is massive, right? The level of social media use, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, right? And so you see companies trying to help creators monetize, manage their business better. Um, mm. So, uh, uh, I mean, Brazil is amazing. A lot, lot, yeah. lot of dynamic things going on there. And so that central bank thing you mentioned is really interesting because they have created PIX. PIX was like wildfire. The I first uh, I've been to Brazil many times, uh, and I've been at various times in my life uh, over the past twelve years. And starting in twenty twenty, I believe it was in twenty twenty, they introduced PIX, and it was like wildfire. Uh, and, it, and it is straight from the central bank where they basically implemented this this thing that everybody's using. And I heard whispers that they're trying to also incorporate it into Argentina so that you can start paying with PIX in Argentina as well. Um, but then the other thing that, the, that you mentioned is the regulatory environment, and it seems like Brazil, in this kind of crazy environment of what the U.S. is doing, where they're where they're increasing interest rates, and then at the same time uh, doing some sort of quantitative easing, although they're not calling it that, when with uh, Silicon Valley Bank getting bought over bought out by J.P. Morgan and like being that 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 kind of like from the government saying J.P. Morgan go buy Silicon Valley Bank to save it, um, so. And I've heard that Brazil is actually like the one 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 of the few countries that's actually doing the austerity thing, and they're and so they're they're. But I believe Mexico is also. Have you heard of anything like in in Mexico that because I know that the 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 strength of the peso is starting to increase rapidly against the U.S. dollar in a similar fashion as to Brazil. Do you know anything about about that either in Brazil or Mexico? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm not I'm not as up to speed on interest rate policies in in the different countries. I'm I'm very mm -hmm. familiar with Colombia. Interest rates went up mm -hmm. substantially there, but um, the thing that's most distinctive to me about the the central bank in in Brazil is more the way they've regulated and supported uh, innovation. That's the thing that's distinctive. Like if you look at the U.S., I'll give you two examples. The U.S. is either all in or all out, oftentimes on regulatory stuff, right? So um, after the dot-com period and then the great financial mm -hmm. crisis, um, you had Dodd-Frank, you had all these legislative things that made it, that raised the bar for what a, it took for a company to go public, for example. And so back, you know, back in the day in the 80s and 90s, you had companies going public with 20 million in revenue, 50 million in revenue. I forget what it was. I think Microsoft went public with, you know, something along those lines. You know, the market cap was 100 million or something like that, or a couple hundred million. Uh, and, and so it was very typical for companies to go public five, six years old. Like that was the way it worked. Now, you know, I forget how old, uh, how long Facebook had been going, but they were way beyond that, right? And so you've got this very restrictive or, or then with crypto, right? It's like no regulation. Then all of a sudden, hey, that's illegal. And Coinbase is trying to figure out what the hell is going on, right? Yeah. Whereas in, in Brazil, I think over the last 10 years, at least last five years, they're like, look, we think creating, they, they recognize how there's this oligopoly uh, of the established blank banks. And mm. then they started viewing, regu you know, kind of, 
different ways of regulating the financial industry as being a way to create innovation to get more people into the banking system to create more access, right? And so instead of raising huge barriers, um, I mean, there's uh, several stories I've heard where the banks would work, sorry, the lawyers uh, mm. you know, for a company would go to the central bank, let them know what they're up to. And then the central bank would kind of let them know like, hey, you know, that sounds really interesting. Keep on going. Or, you know what, why don't we, why don't we figure something out? Right. As opposed to like, Hey, no, you know. Um, yeah. In the U S where it's, yeah. Where it's just like, like, we're not going to tell you anything. And then one day it's like yeah. Gensler will uh, bring the hammer down. Yeah. So, so yeah. just a little bit more interactive, more and more kind of aligned with, we want there to be innovation, right? We want to protect people, but we also want there to be innovation. Right. Mm. Mm. That is very interesting. Um, uh, so, and so let's bring it out to the rest of LATAM. Are there any other countries that are doing similar things in terms because I know that like, it's really interesting for me being in Curitiba, Brazil right now, because uh, I can see a lot of the similarities between Brazil and other Latin American countries, even though Brazil is kind of like an outlier among Latin American countries, has a little bit of a different history, maybe more similar to the United States. Um, but it was so interesting to learn that Curitiba invented uh, the bus system uh, where you have dedicated bus, bus lanes. Uh, and then that was picked up by Medellin. And then Medellin actually became famous for that innovation, even though it came from Curitiba. Uh, but so I know that Medellin is a kind of like an innovative city. I know that Bogota, I lived in Bogota as well. Bogota is a, a pretty innovative city. Uh, like the, the entrepreneurial thing runs deep inside of Latin America in the same way that it does in the United States. And I think it might be interesting maybe to also talk about how maybe that happens by all the people who came over to the, the Western Hemisphere, like a kind of a self-selection uh, evolution type of thing that if you made it to the Western Hemisphere, it means that you came from the old world to the new world or or various other ways as well but uh so that might be in the blood but um uh so are there any other countries who are doing that similar innovation style but with the central banks working closely with uh um legal and other kind of factors i think pix has been the success of pix has really impacted the region and, and the other uh central banks so you know colombia has its own version of pix it doesn't oh, have the same level of adoption yet but they're definitely working on it and trying to make that better uh you have the same thing going on in in mexico as well they have another they have their own version uh, i think essentially um a lot of the countries are trying to create this account to account or at least facilitate these account to account mm. payments right which is at the core of what what pix is um I still think that they tend to move slower, it seems like, than what Brazil, the central, uh, the regulatory, I guess the regulatory body in the central bank does, but it's definitely inspired uh, them a lot. And I also think that there's a certain degree of independence um, between the central bank and the, let's call it the more political part of the government. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Brazil, you've had you know, very different, um, you know, presidents or, or chief executives um, and in, in, you know, you were talking about Mexico, if you look at Mexico and Colombia, they're about as left as they've been, uh, if not in modern history, let's call it. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the, the central bank is somewhat independent. Right. And I think it's part of, you know, not to get too political, but I, I've talked to, to Mexicans who are like, wow, I, I, the economy is just so stable and it's moving forward. And you're talking about the peso and all this. Despite what they would have expected with the with the president, and I think a lot of that is, it, in part, is the central bank, but the other part is there's other things going on in the economy of Mexico, which is, you know, very uh, I think very positive. So, mm -hmm. very interesting. Um, okay, and so let's go from the central banks to actual startups. What are what have you found most exciting about the new opportunities, uh, whether it's in Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, I would, I'm going to go to, I'm going to Argentina as well. So if you have any interest, it, it, it feels like Argentina might just have the a crazy environment that not might not be supportive of entrepreneurship, but maybe that's wrong though as well. Um, so anything you're really excited about in, in Latin America in terms of startups and what's coming next? Well, what I will say is just a quick comment on Argentina. Um, yeah. so I'm very close to several investors and founders and people who live in Argentina from Argentina. And I think what, what they would probably tell you, and, and I think history shows this, 
is, you know, because their environment maybe is a little bit more chaotic in some ways, right? And it's been like that for a long time. So it's not, it's not a new thing, right? Um, and so the people who who start companies and do stuff there, those guys and gals are hardcore, right? Um, and so you've seen, you know, arguably the most significant tech company in Latin America is Mercado Libre. They're from Argentina. Uh, right? Interesting. And they were yeah. founded, I think, before Mercado Libre. I forget there was a couple other um, companies that kind of paved the way. Uh, and they're all Argentine. There's a lot of track record of success from Argentina, despite all of the chaos, right? So again, there's obviously that's that's more related. You know, that, that macro is so dominant that it affects the mm -hmm. micro. But yeah. I think it's more about resiliency. There's a culture, uh, at least for a subset of the people in Argentina for the what's called the entrepreneurship segment, right? Yep. Um, I think I'm just excited by the fact that there are, you know, there, there are big challenges, right? Or, or problems to be solved might be a better way of putting it. Um, and people are going after it, regardless of how big or how small it is, right? And then for founders or, or folks who get traction, and can get 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 some um, some momentum. There, there's so much open space in adjacent markets, right? Um, I backed a founder, so let's just talk about some big big trends in Latin America, right? So there is both a consumer and a business to business credit gap. So when people look at like metrics, let's say if you compared Latin America to the U.S the amount of, of debt or credit that's available for small businesses, mm. medium-sized businesses, you know, in the U.S., if you took those same ratios and applied them to Latin America, there should be like 5X, uh, you know, it should be 5X as easy or there should be 5X more debt capital available to businesses uh, than there is or whatever the number is. It's it's maybe even bigger than that. And, um, and the same is true with consumers, Right. Even if you look at Walmart Mexico and you say, like, what percentage of, of purchases are done with credit cards in Mexico versus the US, it's still a fraction. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are a lot of different reasons, but 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 there's some fundamental that just people don't don't get access to credit, right? And so I backed several companies that are essentially trying to help solve this problem. So this mm -hmm. one company I backed, a company called One Car Now. Uh, founder, very young founder, Myron Sandoval, uh, basically said, look, the the people who drive, the drivers for Cabify, Didi, Uber, who are the top performers, um, you know, let's mm. call them kind of emerging middle class. It's super hard for them to get access to credit to buy a new car, right? And so they either have to borrow a car from a relative, go to a loan shark, right? But But they should there's no reason they shouldn't be getting access to credit, but the banks don't have, like, what's their motivation, right? Yep. Things are good. You know, we continue to serve, like going back to the Brazilian story. So he founded this company. Uh, he offers the, the the top drivers for these platforms access to a brand new car. It's like a rent to own mm -hmm. type of model. Mm -hmm. And uh, that thing has just grown so fast. It's profitable. Um, and uh, he's expanding throughout Mexico, and the opportunity for for that company is across all of Latam and possibly North America. Uh, and so that's super exciting, right? And if you think about that, I've been talking to Uber drivers here in the states, and in many cases they face similar circumstances to people in Latin America, where you know they don't have the same access to capital, or whatever. And so I think what's exciting is that you're going to have a group of Latin American co companies that maybe start there, but end up coming to the US. Um, and so I think that's super, that is super exciting. You have a few yeah. that have done that today, but I think you're gonna see more. That's really interesting. In general, I've just been thinking a lot about credit uh, along with these interest rates and all of these different things. And the idea, like it's a very good idea that essentially they have a track record of making a certain amount of money over a certain period of time. So you can take that. And then that's the underwriting that you do for the loan, which is essentially these guys are probably, you know, you know, some of them are going to fail for whatever reason, but then these are probably a good bet. And then you give them a loan, which nobody's ever, uh, nobody else is doing um, based on, based on that track record. Uh, it's so interesting. It's just like, 
it's such an interesting field philosophically. I this I keep on going back to this interest rate um, this interest rate book called uh, The Price of Time by Edward Chancellor, who talks about interest as a, a as a basically discounting the future, which you're you're you know you're basically saying this money should be worth this much money in the future, and that's what we, that's what interest rate. And then you have central banks coming in and saying that the interest rate is different than that, uh, and they're going to try to like change it. But you go back in history, you go back to the Babylonians and like interest first started as barley, you know, like people would, would give barley seeds, uh, invest barley seeds and then get, get back 20%. So 20% was the normal rate back then. Um, and then that transferred over to money as well. And it's so cool that the, that this guy in Mexico is building this business off of getting, giving, um, credit to, to Uber drivers who obviously are very entrepreneurial. Um, I, I talked to a lot of Uber drivers here in, in Brazil as well. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's just a fascinating, fascinating thing. Um, it's basically, to, to... it's their, it's their business, right? So it's like a working capital loan. This is like, I'm giving you money mm-hmm. in the a hundred years ago, this would be like, Hey, you know, help you build your factory. The car is, is the way they make money, but it's also more than that, right? It's their family and so on. The other thing that's very interesting is that's kind of a, let's call it, that's more of a macro kind of thing at the micro level in, in credit and, and access to capital. I met a founder, he's from El Salvador. He, he mm-hmm. launched his company in Colombia and his experience, um, it's a company called Kala, I think, K-A-L-A. And so I'm not an investor, but, but the founder was super compelling. I've met him a few times and um, he basically said he worked at a, a financial institution that was lending. I think it might've been even to consumers. I can't remember if it was B2B or B2C, but smaller loans. And the regulatory environment was better in Colombia than Mexico. So they moved to <laughs> Colombia and, and, you know, but when he was building the business uh, as an employee, he realized they had no systems to really do the credit origination process with software at scale, right? It's still a very manual process. Mm-hmm. Like you have you conjure up images of people going into a bank branch, you know, bringing a bunch of papers and whatever. And he ends up, you know, working with the team. They build this software, and like it was night and day. And then he realized, you know, if this was us, and I, 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 he, the this guy, Manuela is his name, I believe. He said, if it wasn't for me, that would have never happened, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so he said, you know, I bet you money that all the other financial institutions are in the same boat. So just, uh, and I'm not minimizing it, but, but let's say the, this credit origination process, just standardizing that, automating that, introducing software, making it scale. Now, all of a sudden you reduce the cost to do that underwriting by an order of magnitude. And so now more people a get at least have a chance to get a credit. Uh, you can scale and reach more folks. So that innovation is not insignificant. That's massive. So just building software for 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 the financial institutions in Latin America or non-financial institutions can use this as well, right? To to issue credit to their suppliers or whatever. Like that's a huge innovation. And you know, I would never have thought of it. You know, like I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And it's so cool too, because it's, I bet, you know, I, I don't know, but this is what I would imagine is what's happening is that the specific processes that say uh, Citibank, which is where I used to have a Brazilian business account, was just a quick story. I, I got us in Brazil in order to get picks in order to get a bank account, you have to get a CPF, a CPS for those listening. It's uh, it's basically like, imagine if you gave your social security number every time that you purchase something. Um, and so uh, in order to set up a bank account, you need one of those. In order to get picks, you need a bank account and a CPF. In order to buy plane tickets or anything else, you need to have a CPF. Uh, so it's making my online life in Brazil very, very complicated. Um, uh, and I used to have a bank account and used to have it. So, But I imagine that that bank, like Citibank, the bank that I have this bank account, which has been lost to, to history that I need to go and find, uh, I imagine that they have their processes and that those processes affect millions and millions of people. And that those processes are unique to the various people who work and set up the organization. And so you need somebody who like who has really, really in-depth experience and is there at the right place and the right time to say, oh, okay, you this oligopoly of bankers, like let's implement this really automated way to fix this system so that we can figure it out. Do you think that's an accurate representation or do you think the problems at Citibank are the same problems no matter where they are in the world? 
um, that just like, and that it's just one solution that you can take from America or, and you can bring it to Citibank. You can go to Hong Kong. Do you think it's all based on like cultural complexity or is, do you think it's all the same solution that can be abstracted? I think this is, I think I would, I would say that this is more about inertia than anything else it has less to do with culture is more to do with mm. the inertia of of organizations which is what creates the opportunity for startups right so i'll give you an example a us example uh, rocket mortgage right you know they've been doing home loans in the us probably for over 100 years well over 100 mm. years i'm sure um but rocket and and companies like rocket their main innovation was streamlining the origination process right mm -hmm. because i don't it's now might be different because they may have their own bank but rocket mortgage originally wasn't doing their own loans it would be like you'd go through it and then at the end of it you'd have a wells fargo loan or you'd have a a city loan or a bank america loan but what their innovation was the beginning process so instead of going into a bank and filling out 50,000 things, they were able to do that underwriting in a much more streamlined way. And that was here in the US. So I think it's more, you know, there are industries where there's more inertia, maybe there's less competition, companies get very big, and it worked for them, right? It's not, it's not like they're it's illogical, right? It's the classic, uh, you know, the uh, the dilemma of the larger organization, right? They, um, but but just this whole notion of innovating, like in 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 prop tech or uh, in in the home lending space, this idea of people just originating and getting really good at it has been around for a long time. Um, and but this what this founder did, which I thought was very interesting, and there are other founders too doing this, but. It's just saying, no, we're going to make that one piece of the process better. We're not going to take any credit risk, but we're going to make that better. We're going to let people use the software. And that's a critical way to, to solve the credit problem in Latin America. Hmm. Uh, that's super interesting. So it's essentially the inertia of whether within each country, whether their uh, inertia of the organizations is actually making it available for these startups to come in and develop some of these solutions, basically. Um, and yeah, it's just wild, like the complexity of of all the different countries in the world and all the different companies in the world and all the different ways of, of doing business. And I think about like uh, the United States and how credit works in the United States and how it's all similar principles all around the world, but it's all just like different implementations, different timing, different development levels. Um, uh, super interesting, but it is also like, it's just such a large percentage of people imagine in Africa too, like a large percentage of people uh, are just going to get, start getting access to more and more credit. And, uh, and that will, that will be super interesting. Last thought, just the total other end of the credit system, right? Which is people don't make their payments, right? So hopefully there's a good percentage of people that pay and, and they got what they needed from their credit and it's all good. And then you have some folks that go into collections. Um, I met, I heard about this company. I saw one of the members of their team present, but um, just innovations on collections and using AI mm -hmm. to both predict when it, when it looks like somebody maybe is not on track to, to meet their commitments and restructuring the credit. So it's not just about sending, you know, like some, some guy with brass knuckles to go collect, but it's like, okay, using AI and other technology and software to try to figure things out before things break, right? Or, or be very creative. And that company's doing amazing. They're working with Nubank and other folks, right? So all parts of, of the process of, of, of the financial system are undergoing tremendous innovation simultaneously in Latin America. And so to mm -hmm. me, that's super exciting because you know that's a super important part of life, right? We started off with interest rate policy, like all this stuff matters to you know, you and I and, and other folks, you know, um, yeah, day-to-day -day life. So it's cool. Yeah. Speaking of which, like uh, going back to that Luna, I don't know if you've heard the term YOLO capitalism, uh, you only live once, uh, capitalism. And so that was a huge driver of the, of the, of the crypto kind of, uh, rising. And I know that for me, like, even though a lot, you know, my, some of my family members are involved in venture capital and, and have been around in my whole life, like I didn't learn any of this stuff until I got into crypto and started getting, and then I, and then had the, uh, had a, a challenging, uh, challenging experience in that, in the, in the downturn and just like understanding like, 
okay, so you can't give 20%, like that 20% interest, like everybody else is just thinking, okay, you got this, this kind of like um, sheep mentality where everybody's like really excited and speculating and stuff. Uh, And then you, then you realize, okay, so there are like hard fundamental laws of the universe. And then the universe always does, does return to those hard fundamental laws. It does seem, Um, and finances, that's why I like finance as well is because it, it, like there is all this hype, there is all this speculation. It's kind of sexy, but at the same time, it will teach you the real hard uh, lessons of the of the universe. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that for the last five minutes or so? Yeah, uh, there is. Uh, there, I think um, the economy is this mix of physics and psychology, mm-hmm. right? So, the law of gravity never goes away. Yeah. It, it you know you got to have positive cash flows at some point to be sustainable. There's unit economics that never changes. What does change from time to time is the sentiment in the psychology around this physics, you know, and maybe there are periods of times when you can get away with, you know, you know, somebody's willing to bankroll you with tremendous losses and at other times they're not. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, are you sustainable or not? It's the same thing. I remember I was working at a company in 1999. So right in the peak of the dot-com bubble. And I remember there was a bunch of us that were there and we had been schooled in the laws of physics, let's call it. (laughs) And I'm like, the company I was at was worth $10 billion. And I remember thinking to myself, why are we worth $10 billion? You know, it makes no sense. But hey, what the hell, you know, and and why? (laughs) Somebody's doing it. You know, like, you know, sounded good. My options were above uh, water. So I was excited. It was very... But I remember thinking, like, what is this? Is so weird. What is going on? And sure enough, from March, I don't. I'm, my dates might be wrong. It might be from March 2020 to June. The company's valuation went from 10 billion to a couple hundred million, and then we were in bankruptcy. Yeah. And um, uh, and we ended up surviving and all that. But I remember thinking, like, oh, okay. I guess the laws of physics didn't go away. Yeah, they were still there (laughs) the whole time. And so, you know, we're in one of those periods where for a couple of years, I think people forgot about the laws of physics, but they were there. Yeah, they're playing in the background and uh, ready to pounce, which is so interesting because it's like, how do you how do you find that kind of anti-fragility that the best investors may have? But you never even know whether they are actually just best investors or whether they're lucky as well. Um, and it's like, it's just such an interesting thing as to, as to try to pry apart, like what causality and all this different stuff about like why some people win, some people lose, some people have reasons for why they win some people though, but a lot of times those reasons are just kind of like made up from their own head. And it's like, we don't really know. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and uh, how can people find out more about you, what you're working on? I know you're active on LinkedIn and anywhere else that people can find you. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is the best way for me. Uh, I've found that, uh, especially in Latin America, LinkedIn seems to be like a safe place uh, for founders and other folks. And uh, so that's where I focus my energy. So Ivan Montoya at LinkedIn.com. Cool. Thank you, Ivan. All right, Stuart. This was... Uh, A pleasure, and thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.